please take a seat. Let me introduce you, uh, let me welcome you as well. My name's Lloyd, I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you. Uh, to the guests this morning who are here joining us, it's great to have you with us. Um, lovely to, to see you. Uh, usually when there are more guests, it's good to kind of just introduce myself so you're not wondering for the next little while, why is this guy speaking in a different accent? Um, uh, I was born in Glasgow in Scotland, so I'm not just putting this on. I'm not doing a Mel Gibson in Braveheart or um, Mike Myers in Shrek, right? I'm not just putting it on. Um, but that's where I was born. My parents from uh, Hong Kong. I was born in Glasgow, and here I am now in uh, British Columbia. Glad to be here. Glad to be with you. Let me begin by asking you a question here today. Where do you go when you're at your wits' end? When the world feels like it's crashing down, whose door do you go to? Who do you go to for a hug? Who are you going to call? If your answer is Ghostbusters, then <laughs> kudos for getting the reference, but you need more help than they can actually give you. Um, these are important questions, aren't they? Where do we go? Who do we go to? Uh, whose door do we go to when uh, we live in Vancouver, where it can be so isolating and lonely? We see in our passage here today, we're going through Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, which is an account of Jesus' life. I'm an eyewitness account um, of Jesus' life. And um, we see in our passages, passage a couple of instances where people come to Jesus as a last resort, as a kind of Hail Mary, just as the game is about to end. And we see some remarkable things happen. They bring themselves, their lives, their deaths, their life or death, their fears, their tears to Jesus. And some remarkable things happen. They trust Jesus. So we're going to look at something pretty simple, actually, this morning. On the faces of it, trusting Jesus, what is it and why do it? What is it, does it mean to trust Jesus and why should we do it? So why don't I pray for us as we begin and ask the Lord to, to speak to us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak. You're a speaking God, that you don't leave us in the dark. You don't have us kind of guess what you're like, but you have revealed yourself in, in Jesus. So as we look to him today, would your spirit open our eyes to him? whether it's hearing about him for the first time or for the umpteenth time, Lord, would you bring us a step forward in our understanding and our appreciation and our love for him and um, worship of him, we pray um, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to trust? It's to have faith. It's to believe. These are overlapping words. Uh, trust, faith, belief. We see it in our passage today a couple of times. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Or do not fear, only believe. Faith in particular, I think, is an interesting word, isn't it? It's quite a vague word that kind of does what people kind of want it to do generally, doesn't it? So in that sense, it's kind of a flowery word or a slippery word, depending on whether you're half empty or, or half full. It means belief or, or trust. So in one sense, we all have faith. Because we all believe and trust in something. And even someone who doesn't believe in God has faith. It just happens to be a belief or a trust that there isn't a God, but that something else, career, relationship, or money, is worth trusting in over and above that. The problem is, and the problem arises, uh, when we realize that what we have consciously or subconsciously put our trust in is actually not worth putting our trust in. And it leads to a lot of anxiety, existential kind of angst, and hopelessness. It's not easy to just believe like Ted Lasso gets his team to do, right? He sticks that little poster up in the wall in the changing rooms. 
even though they're terrible at football and they're never going to win a game. He says, believe. But it's not easy, is it, when it's bigger things we're talking about, when it's bigger questions that we have to answer. You see, the Bible generally talks about faith, not in a generic way, but in a specific way. It's always faith in something or someone. I guess the key question then is, what do we have faith in? What do you have faith in? And what happens to that faith when the rubber hits the road? What happens to that faith when the rubber hits the road? Uh, the New Bible Dictionary puts it like this. Uh, faith is this. Faith means abandoning all trust in one's own resources. Faith means casting oneself unreservedly on the mercy of God. Faith means laying hold on the promises of God in Christ, relying entirely on the finished work of Christ for salvation and on the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God for daily strength. Faith implies complete reliance on God and full obedience to God. Belief in something, in Christ. Faith is not just, oh, I wish, um, or I'm, I'm glad that you can believe in five improbable things before breakfast. It's kind of not this uh, sense of believing the unbelievable, but actually in the Bible it talks about believing in someone. And so we have some instances it was easy for me to say. We have some examples um, in our passage. First of all, Jairus, this man called Jairus. It says this in our passage. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And so we have Jairus here, a devoted, um, religious, respected man, a synagogue ruler, someone who would plan and administrate the services of the local synagogue. Religious, well-to-do, with many servants, obviously. And he comes to Jesus, falls at his feet. In reverence, in hope, in desperation, he had one child, one daughter, 12 years old. He was realizing that the last thing a parent wants to hear or experience was happening. She was at death's door. No parent wants to have their child die before them. It feels so perverse. It feels so wrong. He's likely tried everything else, Jairus. He comes to Jesus. He'd heard that he was a miracle worker, this remarkable teacher, this Messiah. And hopefully it's true. He really is a healer. He falls at Jesus' feet. Come, please, Jesus. He implores him because he trusts him or he's got nowhere else to turn. They head to his house, he takes a deep breath. <sighs> he's coming. There's some hope, maybe, hope. But then we see in our passage, this other story, this other woman come in to the scene. This bleeding woman, we are told. It says in verse 43, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. This story of Jairus is interrupted by the introduction of another woman, another person. She is an unnamed woman, but a deeply troubled woman. We are told that she's been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. 12 years of, of bleeding, 12 years of seeing doctors, 12 years of using all the money she had to try and be healed. 12 years of disappointment, 12 years of being socially outcast because that bleeding would have meant that she was ceremonially unclean. 
People who were in contact with her would have to ritually cleanse her, themselves after being in contact with her. So she's taking a risk, this woman, coming to a crowd. Usually people see her and they move in another direction, but she takes a risk, comes to Jesus. What would she do if, what would he do if she touched him? Would he be angry that he had been made unclean by her touch? Would she be made to pay for her desperation by being shamed before this big crowd that was gathering around Jesus? But come she does. She trusts something of him. She believes enough to reach out her hand and grab Jesus' garment. The fringe of his garment is likely uh, not the, the kind of uh, the bottom of the robe, but like um, a garment that he puts around his chest that is flicked over his shoulder. She touches it. She has faith that something, anything, hopefully something uh, will change if she touches this remarkable man. And so we see that trust in Jesus is reaching out for him, reaching out to touch him. And so at this point in the story, in this account of, of Jesus' life, everything is up in the air. Two competing needs, two compelling stories, two cries for help. One is desperate and in an emergency. The other is long-term, heartbreaking, but it's chronic. But they're linked together. In all the uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they bring them together, Jairus' daughter and this bleeding woman. It's a story that comes together. How Jesus responds here is going to set the tone for how we feel um, as we come to him, about being able to come to him, how we're able to trust in him or not. And so at this juncture, I think it's okay to say that trusting is hard. Trusting itself is, is hard. We have these questions in our mind, don't we? Can I trust him to care? Can I trust him to care about me? Not generally, but, but for, for me. Can I trust him to care about me in spite of me? Like if he sees everything about me, is he still going to actually care for me? Can I trust him to care about me in spite of me? And can he do anything about the problems that I have? How can we trust when we have these kind of fundamental doubts, these nagging questions, these um, earworms in our mind that kind of say that he doesn't, he can't, no one can? Well, let's look at what Jesus does as we answer this question, why trust in Jesus? Let me give you three reasons. I want to give you three reasons from our passage that kind of build on each other, hopefully building a case that he is utterly, utterly trustworthy and capable and I hope you'll find that to be true. Let me um, bring three little points to you here. Why trust in Jesus? Firstly, the tenacity of Jesus. The tenacity of Jesus. What do I mean by tenacity? In verse 44, let me read it. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus says, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Jesus is tenacious here. He knows that something has happened, and he's not going to let it lie. I guess that he could have thought to himself or prayed in his spirit, Father, bless that person who needed healing and has received it. May they flourish in life and find life in due time. Amen. But he doesn't. He says, who touched me? I actually don't think that he said it in an angry way, but I just thought it'd be good to kind of see a couple of you jolt up right here, those who are falling asleep here this morning. 
you, your parents are all right. You're allowed to, right? It was a late night. He says, who was it that touched me? And everyone denies it. Jesus says, someone touched me deliberately because I know power has gone out from me. What is Jesus doing here? Why does Jesus want to single her out, to call her out? Is it to make a fool out of her? No. Is it to make an example out of her? Kind of, but a good kind of example. He wants to bring the woman out into the open. Notice that she wants to hide in verse 47, but only comes out because she realizes she can't hide anymore. But Jesus doesn't want to just bring her out of hiding to shame her, but actually to save her. The word for healing and save are the same. The cure is a private matter. Something's changed in her body. Something has, has happened in her body immediately, and it's private. Years of agony and embarrassment were reversed in that one moment. But her problem was not a private matter. It was a public one. And so he drew her, her out with tenacity because he wanted to move it from being a miracle to being a meeting. He wanted to move it from being a power encounter to a personal encounter. He wanted her. He wanted her to know him. He wanted her to be sure that everyone knew that she was healed. And so Jesus goes after her tenaciously in love to show he cared for her with tenacity that she wasn't going to be allowed to be a woman in the crowd who passed on by again. But he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go into peace. Go in peace. This woman had just a little bit of faith. And some, I think you could argue it was kind of like a superstitious kind of faith. But it seems like that was all she needed here. She was freed from her suffering, but Jesus takes it a step further. He often does, doesn't he? I'm not content to heal you physically, but spiritually and socially to go into peace. May shalom be yours now, because you're now a daughter of the king. Not because of your touch, not because of some cheap magic that you've just managed to kind of grab hold of me, but because of your faith in me. Put another way, Jesus was saying, welcome to the kingdom, my time. Bringing you to me is just as important as saving a dying girl. She'd been overlooked all her life. Everyone had overlooked her, had gone the other way. But here Jesus says, I see you, I know you, and I'm here for you. We can trust the tenacity of Jesus because he comes after us in love. I love that verse in Psalm 23 where it says, goodness and mercy, his loving kindness will chase after us all the days of our lives. Usually we see it as, as follow, uh, but in other parts where that's used, uh, in the Bible where that's used, it's, it's, it's of a chase, one animal chasing another. His goodness and mercy are tenaciously after us all the days of our lives as we trust in him. Many of you believe in Jesus and the love of Jesus. You believe it for the crowd. It's good news for people out there, but you struggle to believe it for you. I do. But it is. It's for you. It's for, it's for, for me. Uh, we drive past um, uh, McDonald's on, on Main Street, and there's a little um, building that, that has some graffiti on it that says um, Lloyd. And so when I'm struggling, I'm rushing to get here on Sunday mornings, uh, we go past um, a little picture of Mario. And so Joey said, so it's coming, it's coming. Um, and the picture passes. And he says, it's coming, it's coming, Lloyd, it's coming. And it's a reminder to me that actually um, the Lord loves me. He loves 
all of you, and he loves the world, and he's doing something and renewing the world and remaking things. But um, on Sunday mornings when I come and my little son reminds me, look, there's Lloyd. There's that word Lloyd. And so, um, such a funny, yeah, anyway, it's such a funny name, isn't it, Lloyd? <laughs> Lloyd, it means grey in Welsh, right? So it's not even that glamorous, but hearing your name, hearing my name, um, knowing that God loves me, um, not just a general kind of love, but a specific love that's shaped uh, for me is, is, is a good reminder each Sunday morning when I come here. I wonder if you know that. It takes time, doesn't it, to kind of get there, to believe it viscerally in your heart that actually he loves you. But we see for this lady, this woman who's unnamed, the rest of society doesn't know who she is, but Jesus knows her, calls her daughter, calls her his own. So you can trust the tenacity of Jesus. He wants you. You can also trust the timing of Jesus. Can you imagine what is going on for Jairus at this time? Jesus is interacting with this woman. He would have been going crazy. I wonder what you do when you're impatient. Do you bite your nails? Um, do you twiddle your hair? Do you fiddle around? I, I shake my leg, right? So I'm like this. I'm like, oh, I'm fine. No worries. Yeah, I can wait. No problem. My leg's going like crazy here, right? And his worst, worst fears are, 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 really, are, are realized when Jesus is speaking to this woman because in verse 48 it says this, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. I picture him falling to his knees again. I picture him distraught, broken, inconsolable. His daughter died because Jesus was unhurried. If he'd have rushed, maybe they could have got there. But no, she's dead. Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. God's timing is rarely what we think it should be. We want God to heed our timing, our agenda. Common sense here is, let's go to the dying girl first. That's an emergency. That's acute. Then we'll deal with the bleeding lady. But Jesus, he's got a different agenda. We deal with plans. He seems to deal with people. We deal with jobs. He deals with journeys. We see situations, but he sees stories unfolding. Why? Despite the trust of Jairus, despite his place in society, despite being respected, man, Jesus had a different plan. Why would Jesus make him wait? If he was a doctor today, there'd be a claim of negligence for under pressure choosing the chronic over the acute. The woman's bleeding has been going on for 12 years. She can wait for 12 minutes more. But we see, friends, God's blessing almost never works following our own schedule. We often want him to be our personal assistant, just kind of rubber stamping our decisions and the things that we want. But he's bigger than that. He sees the bigger picture when we actually can't see it. Jesus says to Jairus, don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. He has better timing. He knows what's best for us. He had a plan for the young girl, the older woman, for Jairus. He has a plan for our pain and our suffering. Doesn't make it easier at times when we're in it. It's rock hard. But he's saying to us, trust in me completely first. Even if it looks wonky, if it doesn't feel quite right in terms of the timing. I wonder if something is delayed in your own life right now. 
that you've planned for, you've figured it out, you've got the timing, this is, this is what should happen, what you want to happen, that you've got a schedule for. In trusting Jesus, we wonder this, does he know what he's doing? Perhaps he's saying to you, he's saying to me, you don't have the whole picture. Trust me. Perhaps he's saying to you, in our self-righteousness, you're trying to do this all yourself. Put the timetable down and trust me. You see, if you insist on imposing your timing on Jesus, your schedule on him, you'll actually never feel fully loved by him. When we impose our own timing on him, we actually never end up feeling properly loved by him because it's all according to our plan and what we'd planned and what we think. And sometimes it needs a jolt for us to realize it's actually not in our control. We see in the way Jesus responds in these sandwich stories that he sees things beyond what we can see. We can trust his timing. He's not supposed to be our personal assistant. In the book Unbroken, we see um, Louis uh, Zamperini, and he's a talented runner, but gets caught up in World War II, flies planes, uh, crashes, and is on, our life, on a raft for, for days, for weeks, wondering what's God's time, you know, what's going on here? Not even what's God's timing, but is, is caught up there. He gets taken, survives, gets taken to a prisoner war camp, is there for years, is abused, battered, picked upon. What's God's timing? What's going on? Why would he allow that to happen? It's only at the end of his life when he looks back does he see all the things that God was doing throughout his life, bringing him to himself, having a bigger picture, having a sense of leading uh, despite all that's going on, seeing that other people meant it for bad, but actually um, God enabled it to come for good. So we can trust the tenacity of Jesus, the timing of Jesus, and finally here, the touch of Jesus. Verse 51, and when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. It's worth saying at this point, I don't even have it in my notes, but these things are kind of crazy, aren't they? Right? On, on the face of it, like you'd think this is improbable, unlikely. How can this be? And I think we're supposed to think that. Like, he's not just a, a teacher. He's not just um, a nice person who lived and did nice things. Like, there are some remarkable things that are being claimed here. I think it's okay to admit that. But the question is then, where do we go from that? Do we then distrust what uh, the writers are saying? Or do we kind of begin to kind of dig deeper into who Jesus is? All these details about weeping and mourning are here, and then laughing. It's so strange, isn't it? I think it might be to do with the professional mourners who were part of the custom of those days. But what is even stranger is Jesus saying this, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. He knows she's died, so why does he say that she's sleeping? At this huge point of grief in this family's life, a very strange thing to say. I think he's saying, trust me. And look, he does this. He takes her by the hand. 
and he says to the child, child, arise. In Luke, we have the Greek translation of what Jesus said, but in Mark's gospel, we have the Aramaic version, which uh, gives us cultural insights, which I think get slightly lost in translation. In Mark, we're told he says, Talitha kum. He says Talitha, which literally means little girl, but it's a nickname. It's a diminutive kind of um, affectionate name. What a mother would call a girl like lambkin or sweet child or wee girl or little one or darling or honey. She's not just a dead body to him, not a miracle to be done, but Jesus is tender with this young girl. The second thing Jesus says to her is kum, which means arise, but not in some sort of formal, um, exhortative way. He's not saying, be resurrected. It just means get up. Jesus is doing what parents all over the world do when a kid has fallen asleep in the car and they love the peace and quiet, but they have to wake them up. Otherwise, they won't go to sleep that evening. It's a painful thing to have to wake up a child who's quiet and still for like five minutes. Jesus sits down, takes her hand and says, darling girl, it's, it's time to get up. Buddy boy, it's time to wake up now. He faces the grief of a whole family, the death of an only daughter. He looks into the eyes of life's greatest enemy and his power is so great that he touches this wee girl's hands and lifts her right up out of death. Sweet child, it's time to get up. There's a tenderness and there's a power to his touch that I can't get my head around. But it does something to me. His actions are showing us we can trust him. He has us by the hand. And if he does, then death itself is nothing but just a long nap. Such is his power. If he's like this with death, how much more can he bring to life those things in your life and in mine that seem dead and hopeless and lifeless and limp now, what do you need him to say? Talitha kum to. Because here's what faith is. It's reaching out for Jesus and finding his hand already there, ready to bring his resurrection power. Faith is reaching out for Jesus and finding his hand already there. His touch of tenderness and power holding us by the hand and saying, Talitha kum. In these two incidents seen together, we see that faith is for the gyruses of this world. However desperate he was, but it's actually also for the bleeding women of this world too. When we compare this woman with Jairus, we see that she had no name, no standing, no security. She was ashamed, trembling, broken. She did not, did not approach openly or confidently or with one of those uh, power poses that TED Talks teach us to do before we do something difficult. She came frightened. Jesus welcomes her. He delays everything for her. I wonder if you're thinking, wondering, can I trust Jesus? Perhaps you've suffered a lot, more than 12 years even. Suffering has brought some time of insecurity and fear. You're scared for the future. Maybe you have a terminal diagnosis or that of a family member. You've just been bereaved. You have such shameful, seemingly continual struggle with sin that no one knows about but God. And you think, how can I trust in Jesus? Well, the assurance is this. 
If a broken, outcast, fearful, trembling woman in the first century has her faith commended by Jesus, then you are welcome to come and trust in him. The faith that is glimpsed here is not only desperate, but broken. It's not the faith of the mighty, but the weak. It's not the faith of a religious leader, but a shamed outcast. It's not the faith of someone bold, but the faith of someone trembling. It's faith in Jesus, the friend of sinners, the calmer of storms, the caster out of demons, the healer of daughters and sons. Would you trust in him today? Because we're to see that it's not about um, how much faith we have, but who we have faith in. It's not the amount of faith. It's not how much we can drum up or the feelings or, or um, the amounts. It's not quantity, but it's who we have faith in. However small, if it's centered on him, something happens. Something is happening, even if it doesn't quite look like it. If the timing's slightly off. If trust is reaching out for Jesus and finding his hand already there, it's his touch that we receive. I count it a great joy um, to hold the hand of my daughter, Eva Hope. You've seen her running around. She was the one that was just here. She was born seven weeks early, and her hands were so small when they first arrived. The first time we crossed the road together, once she could walk, she refused to hold my hand. Point blank, no way. I'm walking. I've got it. Let's do this. I gave her a telling off in the middle of the road, which slightly negates my point that the road was dangerous uh, because that's where cars are. But anyway, <laughs> less about my parenting uh, choices here. But now she lets me hold her hand. She puts her hand in mine. She trusts me. She believes me now. Is she holding my hand or am I holding hers? She lifts her arm and puts her hand in mine. So she's kind of holding mine. But as we cross the road, I'm holding carefully onto hers. I'm not going to let her go anywhere if a car comes up and surprises us. As an imperfect parent, I've got her hand. Jesus holds our hands. He takes our uncleanness, like that of the bleeding woman, the dead body of the little girl, and takes it on himself. He loses power so that we might live. He ultimately does that on the cross. On the cross, he lost hold of his father's hand so that we would know for eternity that once he has us by the hand, he's never, ever, ever, ever going to let us go. He's got us. We can trust him. He shares the pollution of sickness and death. By the power of his own love, his touch turns that pollution into wholeness and hope. So he offers us his hand. Reach out for it whatever that looks like for you this morning, and find his hand already there, holding on to yours. Let's have a moment quiet, and then I'll pray.